I think this time, uh, David, we'll go to your interview that you conducted. Uh, we'll give us a nice little intro and uh, throw it to Jamie when you're ready. Yeah, so uh, we had the pleasure of hosting Corey DeAngelis. Um, Corey is the director of school choice with the Reason Foundation, uh, an entertaining and enlightening guest. And so, uh, yeah, Jamie, play uh, play the clip here. All right, we're very excited to have our next guest on the program, Corey DeAngelis, who is the director of school choice with the Reason Foundation. Um, if you don't already follow him on Twitter, I highly recommend that you do. Uh, he is both entertaining and enlightening. Corey, thanks for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Hey, thanks so, for, so much for having me. Great, great. So, I mean, school choice, is, it's a pretty unique subject. Um, it's important to a lot of people. Uh, but what drew you to the subject? What made you want to uh, pursue this as, as your area of expertise? Yeah, it's just a couple of things that drew me towards school choice. The first was that although I went to government-run schools all throughout my K-12 through experience, mm -hmm. I was able to go to a public magnet school for my high school. And for listeners who don't know, magnet schools are still run by the government or run by the district, yep. uh, but they are not, you're not residentially assigned to a magnet school. So students can choose to opt out of their residentially assigned government-run school and go mm -hmm. to a magnet school. So I, I went to one and it was a highly rated magnet school and the school that I was supposed to go to based on where I lived was not a very high quality school. And so that really opened my eyes to the idea that everybody should be able to have options like these. Everybody mm -hmm. should be able to pick a better school and your zip code and your residence shouldn't determine uh, your future and your educational success. So that's one thing that drew me towards school choice, just that personal experience. Mm -hmm. But then also I did my bachelor's and master's also in San Antonio at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Okay. And I did economics degrees. And yep. I just thinking about the school system from an economist perspective, it really makes sense as to why the U.S. education system isn't performing really well. And, and it, a lot of it is because of that residential assignment creates a lot of monopoly power. Yeah. Just imagine if, you know, I mean, right now in the current system, if you want to get out of the school that you're residentially assigned to, you essentially have to pay for two schools if you want to go to a private school or you have to move houses, which is really costly yeah. if you want to go to another district school in most cases. So that creates a lot of monopoly power, which as from an economist perspective is, is a bad thing which leads to lower quality and higher costs. And I think so, that's what explains a lot of our issues. So, I mean, we talk about consumer choice issues all the time. It's usually about consumer goods, like what we have available to us, the products that we have, the importance of free trade, all of that. Why do you think that there is a bit of a disconnect when it comes to the value of choice when we compare the cars that we pick to drive and our education opportunities. So what are the justifications for limiting someone's school choice to their zip code? Or what, what type of, what does the other side have to say that makes education so fundamentally different where the ideas of choice and competition don't apply? Well, they do apply. Um, uh, you know, education is a service and, you know, we allow for choice with higher education. Why don't we allow for choice with K through 12 education? We mm -hmm. allow for choice with pre-K 
when, when we have universal pre-K programs, mm-hmm. so why don't we allow, you know, K through 12 choice? We allow choice for K through 12 for the wealthy. They pick their schools. So we already have a market for education that functions at every level, mm-hmm. um, regardless of the traditional system or not. But I, I do understand that the other side does try to make arguments to protect the monopoly that the status quo holds. And mm-hmm. their argument is that, you know, education is different because it's really important is one thing. Yeah, but look, food's really important. That's a basic necessity. Food is more important to my life than education because if Very I don't good have point. food, I I die. But no one wants yeah. us to be residentially assigned to government grocery stores. That never works out. So mm-hmm. similarly, we shouldn't have people residentially assigned to government-run schools either. We can still fund education through sure. the government. You know, if 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 we see that there are positive externalities to education, there's social benefits to having an educated populace. Yep. Well, then we should allow people to pick their schools so they can actually get a good education. That would lead to not having residential assignment. That would lead to yep. allowing for private schools to thrive and, and to not um, protect the monopoly. But again, I, I, none of the arguments to protect the status quo are actually um, make any sense logically. It's, it's, it's just a power grab. And that's unfortunate for students because it means that they are forced to go to a school that doesn't have a very strong incentive to do the right thing and educate them well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the incentive structure is built more to just perpetuate what they're already doing and have that kind of path dependency rather than inserting maybe some more, some, uh, some obviously more competition, which increases, in my view, the dynamic nature of education in terms of how it can change and adapt and you, you probably, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that in these scenarios we see education uh, setups that are a lot more agile and can shift to changes in best practices and newer, more innovative ways of teaching students both new content, but teaching people old content in new ways. Yeah, so just like think about other publicly provided services or just publicly funded services that we mm-hmm. have in the United States. For one example, we have food stamps. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's, they're for the least advantaged. But just imagine if we had food stamps for everybody and that everybody had to use those food stamps at a government-run grocery store that mm-hmm. they were residentially assigned to. That wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. But if you imagine that system, that's exactly what we have with the education system today. And yep. people fight you know, people protecting the public school monopoly will fight really hard to not allow you to take that funding anywhere else to a non-government run school or even a different government run school that you're not residentially assigned to. That doesn't make any sense. That would be akin to arguing you have to use this food stamp at not private grocery stores, government run grocery stores. You can only take them to food kitchens. You can't take them to Walmart. You can't take them to Trader Joe's. That wouldn't make any sense. And everybody knows that doesn't make any sense. But like you were alluding to, we do have systems in in some states that allow people to get away from this residentially assigned system Mm -hmm. and allow people to take their child's education dollars to the best school possible. And so almost all the states, I think 45 45 or 46 states have charter schools right now. So kind of like the magnet school that I was talking about that I went to in Texas, Charter schools are similar to that in that they're still public schools, but they are privately independently operated. Yeah. But students are allowed to, you know, take their education dollars there. And then we also have states with voucher programs, such as North Carolina, mm-hmm. has three private school choice programs, one being the Opportunity Scholarship Program that allows kids to opt out of their residentially assigned government-run school 
and take some of that funding, I think about half, to a private school of their choosing. Okay. Uh, and this, so this breaks up that monopoly system and it really um, makes the system student-centered instead, instead of system-centered. And what do we see outcome-wise in terms of a state like North Carolina and some of those programs? Do we have any data on how things are going in terms of results or outcomes? Yeah, and so if you look at the private school choice literature overall, it's, it tends to be positive, especially when you look at non-test score outcomes. And I think that's because parents really care about things like character education of their children, the safety of their children. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the satisfaction studies on private school choice, they're over, they're, every single one of them that I've seen, I think there's 18 random assignment studies that look at satisfaction Mm -hmm. all positive. So people like being able to choose different schools and that varies. The reasons for choosing those schools vary. Sometimes it's based on getting better standardized test scores. Sometimes it's based yep. on more safety. Sometimes it's based on citizenship education. Sometimes it's character education, staying sure. out of gang activity. Yep. Um, but if you look at like North Carolina, I think there is one rigorous evaluation of that North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program it was, it's recently peer-reviewed and published in a journal called AERA Open. Okay. And the main author there is Ana Egalite at um, North Carolina State University. And her team found large positive effects of the Opportunity Scholarship Program in North Carolina on students' math test scores and also their English test scores. Okay. She didn't find any evidence of any negative effects on any of the outcomes that she looked at. Um, but this is the only rigorous evaluation I know that's specific to private school choice in North Carolina, and it's it's a very large positive effect. Mm -hmm. And so shifting, I mean, no, that's that's really good to hear that there are some kind of seen positives in terms of North Carolina's example on a macro on the macro side of things, looking at the United States um, as a whole, and then as fifty states, which state? is the best when it comes to school choice and, and, and the opportunities that parents and students have yep. to, to decide where to go to school. Yeah, it depends on how you, uh, you want to measure you know, what the, the best in school choice actually looks like because <laughs> yep. you can have a lot of kids using a school choice program, but if the program is super highly regulated, I would argue that's not a really pure form of school choice. Sure. But based on the data that we have out there right now, Arizona seems to have the highest percentage of kids using either charter schools or private school choice programs. Mm -hmm. And I think Florida is the second um, highest share of students using some type of school choice mechanism. But I will say North Carolina is at one of the top of these lists. If you, if you define school choice as the amount of the population using homeschooling options. So mm -hmm. in the United States, only 3% of the school age population identifies as, as having a, a homeschool setup. Mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty consistent from state to state. But when you look at North Carolina, about 8% of the school age population is identified as a homeschool student. And okay. second, place, second place is below 4%. So North Carolina is way higher than any other state as far as homeschooling goes. Interesting. And I think I think this could lead the way. And I mean, th I think this is a good argument for North Carolina to go to go after a, a, a universal education savings account because yep. education savings accounts are kind of like vouchers that you can opt out of the public school and get some of that money. But it, with vouchers, you can only use that as, at a private brick and mortar school or virtual yep. school, but you can't use it for homeschool expenses. Yep. But with education savings accounts, you can do that. And I think North Carolina has an education savings account program 
but it's a very small program targeted to students with special needs. Yeah. So we should allow every every family that wants to homeschool to be able to do so. And I think, you know, after this whole COVID-19 blows over, I think a lot of families are going to realize that they like homeschooling. Yeah. Uh, but obviously lower income families are going to have a barrier financially yep. uh, to homeschooling, even if they like it. So I think that's a good argument in North Carolina to have this homeschooling option, education savings accounts to cover those expenses. Moving from kind of the more serious stuff to some of the funnier stuff with you on Twitter and, and some of the, the, what I would call dunks you've had on <laughs> uh, some folks who are against school choice. Uh, can you just tell our listeners what you, some of the, maybe pick one or two of the, mm-hmm. the bigger uh, scandals or however you want to describe them mm-hmm. that you've uncovered and, and really drummed up on Twitter about school choice and maybe some hypocritical uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. politicians out there. Yeah, if you look at the Educational Freedom Institute website, we actually started a map called the School Choice Hypocrisy Map. Okay. Because I was finding so many of these politicians who exercise yep. school choice for their own kids, but then fight really hard against you know, having school choice for less advantaged families, yep. voucher programs or charter schools. And the, the first person I discovered was Elizabeth Warren, who was mm-hmm. running for president of the United States. And it was really interesting because Education Week did a survey of all the politicians that were running for president and asked them where they went to school and where they sent their kids to school. Elizabeth Warren's campaign responded about where she went to school. They said, oh, well, Elizabeth Warren went to public schools in Oklahoma. Yeah. And she taught at public schools, but they remained silent. They said, we have no comment on where she actually sent her own kids to school. <laughs> so I did some digging on Ancestry.com and found that Alex Warren, her son, who's now about 30, 40, 43 years of age, actually went to elite private schools starting in fifth grade all the way through 12th grade in Austin, okay. Texas. Pennsylvania. Wow. And she actually, this actually blew up because Elizabeth Warren lied to a voter's face on video about it. Maybe because she didn't know that I'd already figured this out and wrote about it in mm-hmm. her post. Yeah. Um, so that was a huge, you know, um, unfortunate uh, uncovering for Elizabeth Warren. But then also, since we're talking about North Carolina earlier, I also uncovered Roy Cooper. Governor Roy Cooper yep. is pretty strongly against. Uh, private school choice, the voucher program in yep. North Carolina, but then he exercised school choice for his own kid. And I discovered that online as well and, and discussed it. I've also discussed it with Nick Gillespie over at Reason Magazine yep. uh, in a video as well. But um, and you- yeah, Roy, Roy Cooper, you know, he also lied in one of his videos or he may have not known the truth. So he, I don't sure. know if he was actually lying or or if he just didn't know, but he yeah. said something that was incorrect. He said that we don't know how these kids are doing in the program, but that's not true because students who use the vouchers, uh, their schools have to report standardized testing results to the state, and their schools also have to uh, report graduation rates for those students to the state as well. So it's not true that we don't know how these kids are doing. We do know how these kids are of course. doing. And I mean, when he sent his kids to private schools, how did he hold his those schools accountable. Well, yeah. he voted with his feet. If they, you know, <laughs> if, if they, if they didn't serve his kids well, he could have pulled them out. So I mean, and I th- why, it's, why not let low, low income families do the same? And yeah, that's exactly what I was just going to say. It's, it's incredibly frustrating to see the school choice for me, but not for thee. Um, when it comes to these wealthier politicians who will rally on about uh, what they call public schools, 
um, and others call government schools. Um, we'll we get into that. Uh, but we'll, we'll rally on for public schools while they opted out of public schools. And so it's like, from my point of view, when it comes to school choice on vouchers and things like that, this is just a logical extension of the freedom that their wealth has afforded them, but now giving it to low-income Americans across the country. Well, in an interview with the president of the National Education Association, the nation's largest teachers union, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren, I think in November 2019, uh, the video came out right after I uncovered the fact that her kid went to a private school, yep. fifth grade to 12th grade. She told Lily, uh, you know, the uh, president of the NEA that, well, everybody should just keep their kids in the public schools. And, you know, even if they're, they're, the public schools are failing, we should, you know, everybody should just stay in those public schools and fight to make them better. But that's not what she did. No. She didn't keep her kid in the public yeah. schools and fight to make them better. And that's like saying, oh, well, you shouldn't be able to take your food stamp from Walmart to Trader Joe's because, you know, then you're going to drain funding from Walmart and not, you should just make Walmart better. That doesn't make any sense. No, of course not. You, you should, it, I shouldn't have to justify where, where I'm spending my food stamps or my education dollars, you know, based on uh, whether the, the, the school I'm leaving or the grocery yeah. store I'm leaving is getting any better or not. But yeah, um, Elizabeth Warren uh, failed her own education purity test, <laughs> you know, essentially by, yeah. by doing what she told others that they should not do. Yeah. I mean, and then yeah, also, yeah. I mean, and a, another argument that's made by Warren and others is that, school choice defunds public schools in some way. Um, but when people pay for private schools out of pocket, they defund the public schools as well because public schools are based on, their funding is based on enrollment. Yes. So when, when Elizabeth Warren took her son and put him in a private school, yep. well, the public school he would have went to had a lower enrollment and so decreased funding by the same amount as if she would have used a voucher program to move from that public to private school. It's the same Yep. financial effect on the, on that public school. So that argument doesn't work either for no. the school choice hypocrites. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, the hypocrisy there is, is infuriating. One ongoing debate is about language, about public schools versus government schools. And you've come down very firmly on maintaining the reference point of calling them government schools. Mm -hmm. Other people have called them public schools. Can you give us a, just a brief synopsis of that debate and mm -hmm. why you are kind of holding the line at government schools? Yeah, they're, they're government schools. They're not public schools in any sense of the word. They're run by the government. They're mm -hmm. funded by the government. They're regulated by the federal, state, and local governments. They... Um, they're not public because they're not open to all members of the public. You're, mm -hmm. You know, if you don't live next to the school, too bad. You, you can't go to that particular school. So it's not yeah. open to the public, like a public park. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, and it's, it's also not a public good. That's more of an economist coming sure. out in me, but you know, a lot of people call schooling or a public good, but it's not because it's rivalrous and exclusive. So yeah. it, it fails the public good argument as well. But essentially, look, it's run by the government, operated by the government, funded by the government, regulated by the government. They are government schools. And, it, you know, um, that's just the most accurate term to use. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't call 
call them public schools if they're not open to the public. Yeah, I think that was the biggest one in seeing some of your funny exchanges on Twitter. It was like people are saying, well, they're public. And it's like, well, I can't send my kids to that school or that school or that school. So are they really public? Um, yeah. And that highlights the, the, the paradox there is that it's, it's, uh, it's not like a park. It's not like something that's just open to all taxpayers it's, it's, or, or all citizens. It's very limited. You are confined to a residential area um, for most people if they don't have school choice options or if they don't have the means to basically double pay and, and, and go to a private school. Yeah, so. And, and my, my t- typical response is, look, government school is the most accurate term because of everything I just laid out. Mm-hmm. If you don't like the fact that I'm calling it a government school, in, instead of getting on me about why I should call it a public school, even though it's not open to the public, you should look in, you know, to yourself and and ask yourself why you're so upset about me calling it a government school. Yeah. It's probably because people know that government usually doesn't do a good job at things. Yeah. do a good job with the DMV or delivering the <laughs> mail. I was just going to um, say that when I hear government, I think waiting to get my driver's license renewed. <laughs> And what's, and what's the, you know, if, if, if you understand that and you understand government doesn't do a good job at things, then why do you want government running the thing like education? That's super important. Yeah. Um, I don't want them messing up my kid's education, just like they mess up the mail and, and the yeah. DMV service. Yeah. Um, there's no reason for government to run schools, just like there's no reason for government to run grocery stores. There could be a public interest in funding education. Sure. That's not the same thing as operating actual schools. Of course. All right. Well, Corey, thank you very much for joining the show. Um, We really appreciate it. We'll definitely have you on again uh, to chat about school choice because this is an issue that is becoming more and more prevalent with each passing day. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining Consumer Choice Radio. Cool. Thanks for having me. This is America. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. What we just heard there was an interview that David um, put together with Corey DeAngelis of the Reason Foundation on school choice. Uh, super important topic. This, these are the kinds of stuff that, you know, whenever schools are back in session, um, it's going to be very pressing in many states and definitely uh, here in North Carolina and many other, many other places. So it was great to have him on the program. Great job, David. Yeah, yeah, great to have him. We'll definitely have him back. Um, and we'll definitely have him back to to talk about any other scandals that he uncovers about politicians, whether they be Elizabeth Warren or the governor of North Carolina, talking about how terrible school choice is um, without realizing that people know that they sent their children to alternative schools. So um, a great guest, friend of the show, and we'll have to have him back uh, soon to uh, chat about how school choice is developing um, as uh, the political spectrum reshifts to normal conversations in a post-COVID-19 world. Welcome to Thunderdome, 